1: Garfield's uh, discussion of the self and his basic idea that we need to replace, as much as possible, talk of selves with talk of persons. And the difference in that language uh, can be very significant. And when we talk about a person we are reminded that we are dealing with um, something that is embodied as um, physical existence, is not a uh, mysterious, uh, uh, separate kind of substance uh, that exists outside of space and time and has the possibility of immortality and so forth and so on but persons are embodied mortal beings and uh, even more importantly perhaps are social beings that we are social animals that exists uh, in the midst of uh, cultures and in uh, families and societies and so forth. And that our identity is not something that um, is to be found uh, deep inside us, but is something to be mapped. Uh, in terms of all our connections and relations and uh, activities and functions. That's a very uh, basic and important uh, distinction. I think the
0: dilemma is that
1: Garfield sometimes talks as if the self is a... uh, just an obsolete concept we should be able to do without. It's an illusion. And it should go the way of words like phlogiston, or the humors, or the ether, right? That it uh, belongs to a defunct scientific theory, right? As if anyone who uses the word self is basically a... uh, closet Cartesian, who is uh, uh, explicitly or tacitly committed to a theory of two substances, a mental and a physical substance in in the world. And in that sense, indeed, uh, that's a kind of obsolete theory that we um, We want to uh, get over, move beyond. But unfortunately, uh, the word self uh, has spread uh, far beyond that kind of narrow philosophical usage and is deployed in our everyday language in all sorts of ways that it's not going to be so easy to expunge, even if we wanted to try to do it. It was somewhat ironic that uh, this week, I was asked uh, by one the psychoanalytic institute to give a workshop on self-psychology uh, and to uh, use that word pretty extensively in sort of talking about a whole psychoanalytic theory and uh, form of practice. And self-psychology, uh, uh, the term uh, originates with heinz Kohat uh, was originally meant to use self, not in some Cartesian sense, but in an everyday experience near sense uh, in contrast with those Freudian abstractions, the ego, the superego, and the id. Uh, no one has ever seen or felt one of those in themselves, but Kohut thought that everybody had a sense of self, thought everybody um, uh, could relate at a different kind of level to their own sense of identity or agency or values and ideals, and that this was a... um, a way to get psychoanalytic language closer to people's felt experience, make it less uh, theory distant. Now in doing so, he basically spoke of the the self, you know made it a noun, and uh, talked of it as if it was a psychic structure, you know, another noun. Uh, Well, you know, what what does it mean to have a psychic structure? Uh, When you try to define that, you you see that you're really talking about processes and capacities, things that are more verbs than the nouns. Uh, In particular, you want to talk about things like Affect regulation, whether uh, a strong emotion uh, discombobulates you, to use a nice technical term. Uh, does does it feel overwhelming or unmanageable? Uh, are you swept away by emotion in a way that you feel like you can't think straight anymore? Uh, that you then act against, you feel very reactive and act against what will later seem like your best interests. Uh, so Kohud used this noun of uh the self as a structure uh to try to talk about uh different mental capacities, different emotional capacities that really belong to a person, how a person feels about how they're handling themselves, but tried to describe it in a way uh, in terms of different functions that were working well or badly. But the metaphor that he used was of a structure that could be either cohesive Or fragmented. You know, fragmented is something, you know, that uh, happens to a piece of pottery when you you drop it. It it shatters, it breaks into pieces, and it loses its function. Uh, And it's important to recognize that we're using a metaphor. That... uh, Nobody thinks that they're little pieces of the brain breaking off and floating free inside your head when you're feeling fragmented or disorganized or discombobulated. Uh, But there's this kind of subtle drift uh, into metaphorical language. And this is something that... um, is both unavoidable and something that we need to uh, always be on a lookout for, because metaphors can have kind of unintended uh, consequences, unintended connotations be used in ways that we didn't uh, initially intend. So... Although uh, Garfield wants to stamp out Cartesianism and wants to banish the word self, more or less as the way we would sort of banish a literal use of the word soul once we decide we're uh, atheists, Uh, the word self exists in our common language in a way that is... uh, too ubiquitous to be ever really uh, expunged. And I don't think we want to become language police in the way that we sort of go around and sort of are endlessly paying gotcha with people who are using the self in what seems like too literal a way. Uh, And I think that part of the Problem with the Garfield book is he he does get into that game of gotcha with uh, phenomenologists who try to just talk about what seems like an ordinary sense of self, or a way that we use the word self in everyday language to talk about things like identity and agency and moral responsibility, uh, and the word is pretty much embedded in our language when we try to talk about those things. And we need to beware of any kind of latent Cartesian assumptions that might be surreptitiously slipping into our uh, thinking when we use that word. Uh, But we're not going to uh, purify our language in a way that... um, all talk of selves as nouns is is going to be banished. What I think we have to to reckon with, uh, however, what we do in Zen practice all the time, is look at the way in which our psychology seems very naturally oriented uh, towards the inner rather than the the, co- the complexities of of the outer uh, we 're much more inclined to think in terms of essences than interconnections right uh, This seems to be a very natural part of what we mean by identity. And it certainly uh, comes into play whenever we try to talk about something like our true self or to speak about who who are you really, right? And when uh, the question gets posed like that, who are you really? we're inclined to think the answer is something that's deep inside us, right? Rather than the answer is right on the surface of our physical body or in the web of interrelations that make up our life. Uh, What does it mean if someone asks me who am I? And I answer Barry versus, oh, I'm a New Yorker or I'm a doctor, right? Uh, what, how are all the different layers or nuances of identity uh, revealed and what kind of answer I give, right? Uh And I think that lots of koans are sort of always, uh, in this strange way, trying to teach us to be much more superficial than we're inclined to be ordinarily. Uh, Superficial being another way of talking about being immediate and present, right? Being right in the surface of the moment, right? Not think that there's something essential or hidden or deep inside that's who I really am, but right here, right now, doing this, right? That's who I am. So when a koan asks, show me your original face before the birth of your parents, it's colluding with this a uh, natural tendency to think original face before the birth of the parents how far back how deep do you have to go to find this mysterious essence right okay right? the last place you're going to look for it is in the mirror in the moment right it must be something hidden it must be something mysterious so that's a very uh deeply ingrained human tendency, and part of our practice is this kind of return to immediacy uh, and to try to bring us back out of these uh, sort of illusionary depths where we think uh, the truth must be hidden, right? Now, the language of persons is uh, a very good way to remind ourselves uh, that what we are is embodied and immortal. Uh, If someone wants to understand what we really are, uh, the best thing to do is just to look at the body because the body is both physical and always changing. The body is always manifesting the reality of impermanence. The body is always manifesting the reality of interdependence. We need oxygen, we need food, we need shelter, and we need love and understanding and relationship, right? And as we always say, you can't be yourself by yourself. So. When we want to look at, you know, this mysterious business of emptiness and interdependence, these things don't exist in some esoteric, ethereal realm. They're the most immediate and embodied things there are. And I think that part of the dilemma with um, Garfield's crusade against the self is that he sometimes seems to treat it as if uh, the self is empty in a way that's different from the way everything else is empty, right? The self is empty, but so is the body, right? Because what empty means is lacking any permanent, non-changing, non-dependent essence, right? Now, it's certainly true that there's no, you know, Cartesian essence inside that is unchanging uh, and free of cause and effect. And we want to dispel the myth of those essences. But it's not as if once we get rid of that, we banish this one Uh, illusionary, mythical uh, substance. We still have to come to terms with emptiness in the most basic and mundane ways of of all, in terms of things like aging and illness and and death. And these are all properties of our bodies. So I think that uh we don't want to get into this uh mode of um buddhist self-congratulation where we act as if well i've seen through the illusion of the self right i've grasped that it is empty right well that's fine you know you've sort of uh, not got caught, caught up in a particular philosophical mistake but to really understand emptiness is to understand what's happening to your body right now to your body as it ages right that's not uh all the talk of the emptiness of the self may feel very distant and very uh unreal when you're lying sick in bed right but that's the uh part of impermanence you really have to uh, come to deal with not the impermanence associated with uh, an idea Garfield talks about you know the traditional buddhist distinction around conventional truth versus uh, absolute truth and Makes a good point that what we call conventional truth is everyday reality and is not something that we're uh, going to suddenly do without once we're enlightened, as if we're going to see through all those conventions once and for all. And he has lots of examples where, you know, he'll talk about. uh, social conventions, things like being a citizen, being married, uh, being a husband, uh, being a parent, all the ways these words embody certain social structures and expectations. Mm -hmm. And the way we engage with entities like universities and corporations and Zendos that um, are, in a certain sense, social constructions. They don't have an uh, essence that can be reduced to uh, chemistry and physics. Right? You can't analyze a corporation or money or uh, uh, being a teacher. Uh, in terms of physics. Uh, there are nothing about those things that contradict the law of physics, but it's just not a level of description in which you can specify anything about what they are, or how they, they function. And they are part of our real world. That's uh, We don't simply live in a world of, of molecules, and we, we can't talk about ourselves at that level. And part of the tendency to always look for essences is also this kind of reductionistic tendency that we see operating all the time in our relationship to science. Uh, And I think that for our contemporary uh, society, Uh, It's all too easy to uh, say, well, we've seen through the illusion of the separate self. We've seen through the illusion of the soul. We don't believe in that kind of essence anymore. But what we end up doing is just chasing a different kind of essence. Uh, uh, And for us, it tends to be much more likely to be neurological or. Physiological or biochemical. And we think that who we are deep inside is what's going on in our brain or in our hormones. Uh, But primarily now, the idea is that we think it's very scientific to stop talking about minds and start talking only about brains. Because minds are not something that we can uh, see or study. And and we think that there's a big problem of the nature of consciousness because we haven't quite figured out how to uh, reduce it to a description of neurology as if that is uh, always naturally the goal to reduce something uh, from one level to to another. Uh, But ultimately, this is like trying to reduce the game of chess or the corporations or teaching to a description at the level of physics or chemistry. What's happening at the complex level uh, is just a different level that's non, non-reducible. But that's where we uh, now are much more likely, I think, to uh, inadvertently get trapped Uh, not so much in talk of selves as talk of brains. And so uh, we have to uh, be vigilant in all sorts of other ways when we move from the level of abstraction of selves to embodied persons. Uh, When we talk about that kind of embodiment, we don't want to just... uh, change channels of our essentialism or reductionism and say well what a person really is is what's going on neurologically Now, what a person really is is also all their interdependent social relations which are just as defining of a person as uh, their neurochemistry uh, All right. I think I will uh, leave it uh, there for today. That covers a lot of territory. It should be plenty for our uh, discussion group. Thank you.